So I have been a huge fan of Truniagen for years, and that's why I am super excited to share that I've recently began partnering with them. I literally don't miss a day taking it. And if I were to only take one supplement, this is the one. And here's why. Our bodies produce a molecule called NAD, which is critical for our cellular energy and repair. But the levels sadly decline as we age. A nutrient that can help increase our NAD is a form of vitamin B3 called nicotinamide riboside, otherwise known as NR. It is the most efficient way to get this is through this Truniagen because it's the best NAD precursor around. Truniagen helps support our bodies against everyday stressors that can really damage our cells like overeating, drinking, staying up too late. In my opinion, no one is too young to take it. I wish I knew about this in my early 30s. And what's most amazing is that Truniagen is backed by 18 clinical trials and has endorsements of two Nobel Prize winning scientists. So go check it out at truniagen.com. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N. And we have a special offer for new customers to receive $20 off orders of $100 or more using the code HUSTLE20. So definitely run, don't walk, and scoop some up now. Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Anna Lemke, who is the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnostic Clinic at at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Lemke is a psychiatrist expert in treating addictions of all kinds, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, video games. Dr. Lemke is also an expert in the opiate crisis. We discuss on the podcast today the biology and psychology of why people become addicted to certain substances and behaviors and the key role that our dopamine balance plays in creating these addictions. We also discuss the science and practice of how to conquer addictions, why people relapse, and how to avoid relapsing. Uh, We also talk about topics closely related to addiction, such as shame, lying, community. Her newest book is called Dopamine Nation, which quickly became the number one New York Times bestseller. She describes very well in layman's terms how all of this happens and how we actually find balance. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. This episode is important for anyone struggling with addictions of any kind, for their friends and family. And if not, you will really just find a lot of insight. Enjoy. I really liked your book. Oh, thank you. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. I find it's like very timely too, right? Cause it obviously hit a chord since it's, mm-hmm. I feel like I see you everywhere. I see the book title everywhere. You obviously, good. you know, no, it's great. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's great. I think, cause I think everybody can relate to some level um, yeah. of this, you know, that's right. Yeah. So that's what I really yeah. love about it. I'll, I'll just do a quick little brief intro that we have, uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, who wrote the book dopamine nation. Here it is. Uh, and like I was saying, it's just like, a, obviously I hit a chord cause, um, we all have, well, we'll get into it. Why don't we start with the, with the beginning, right? So can you just kind of tell everybody what is dopamine? And why does it get released? And why is it so important for us? Yeah, so dopamine is a chemical made in our brain. It has a number of different functions, but one of its most important functions is to mediate our experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's a neurotransmitter, so it's a chemical that's released between neurons. Neurons are these long spindly cells that conduct these electrical impulses, but they don't actually touch. There's a little gap between them, and that gap is called the synapse. And neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge that gap, and dopamine is one of many neurotransmitters. Um, Dopamine is released when we do something pleasurable or rewarding, but it's also really important for motivation. It may be even more important for motivation uh, than than pleasure. And dopamine is also important to movement. So I'm sure um, you know you've heard of Parkinson's disease, and that's actually a depletion or lowering of dopamine in a different part of the brain called the substantia nigra. But it's no coincidence that pleasure, motivation, and reward and movement 
are mediated by the same neurotransmitter. Because of course, you know, for most of human existence, or for that matter, organismal existence, um, we've had to, you know, move to get our reward. That's no longer true, which is one of the things that makes living in the world today so challenging, but movement and motivation and reward are, are closely linked in the body. You talk a lot about in your book about having that balance between the pain and pleasure. It's like a seesaw in a way, right? You can't yeah. have too much, even too much pleasure can, can actually uh, lead to a lot of pain or depression. You know, right. I, I found, I found that to be extremely interesting to me personally. I'm sure other people obviously did too. Um, now I guess my, I guess my first real question with that then is number one, how do, how do you balance it? Um, and I guess it's a two prong question. When you talk about even addiction, let's just go with that actually. Mm-hmm. Is there certain per- people who are more vulnerable to addiction? And do you find that in our time now that with social media and all this other, you know, quick dopamine, instant gratification hits, that it's spiked and increased over the last 10 years? Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the, the second part of your question. It is indeed true that people are differentially vulnerable to the problem of addiction, especially to traditional drugs like drugs and alcohol, right? Not everybody is equally susceptible to that problem. And we know that that risk or vulnerability of getting addicted to drugs and alcohol is partially genetic or inborn. If you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction to alcohol, for example, you are at increased risk compared to the general population of becoming an alcoholic, even if you are raised in a totally different home and don't have that behavior modeled for you. So that's a r- really important, uh, you know, thing to realize. There is actually like, so people do say that and it's people like always poo poo it, but it, that is a thing that people actually are born with that gene. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. But here's the sort of wrinkle and the reason that, you know, one of the main reasons I wrote dopamine nation, um, you know, there's this concept of drug. So first of all, there's, there's this pleasure pain balance that I talk about in the brain and how pleasure and pain are co-located. They work like opposite sides of a balance. Um, when we experience pleasure, that balance tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. An overriding rule governing the balance is that it wants to stay level. And the way it stays level is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So let me just describe that. Um, I like romance novels. They release dopamine in my brain's reward pathway. Um, I get a little tip to the side of pleasure. But then, you know, I have these neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But they don't get off right when the balance is level. They like it there. So they stay on until I'm tipped an equal amount uh, to pain. And then they get off. And when my balance is tipped to pain, that's the moment of like not being able to put the book down and feeling that urge to read another chapter, right? It's, it, it's that moment of wanting because I'm in this mini dopamine deficit state, which is what happens when we get a surge of dopamine. Our brain will compensate by downregulating our own dopamine transmission, not just to baseline, but below baseline. That's those neuroadaptation gremlins. Now, if I wait long enough, they hop off, you know, and, and balance is restored. But the key, key thing to keep in mind here is that every pleasure has a price. Every pleasure has a price, okay? And if we deviate our balance of the side of pleasure, we are going to have to pay for it with the uh, the aftermath. But now getting back to genetics, what tips my balance may not tip your balance, right? Mm. So my, my balance is actually not tipped at all by alcohol and other drugs. Even caffeine doesn't do anything for me. So I thought that I didn't have the addiction gene. You know, I thought I was like I didn't, I wasn't vulnerable to that problem. But then lo and behold, the internet was invented. And the Kindle was invented and I discovered, you know, teenage vampire romance novels and I became a chain reader. And as I talk about in the book, I really actually got addicted to reading on my Kindle a certain, you know, genre of book that progressed over time to frank erotica, essentially socially sanctioned pornography for women. And that would never have happened, you know, if 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 technology had not invented this infinite access to these types of books that have been engineered. Books are also engineered to keep us engaged, right? And so that, that's a key piece of the message that we're 
not everybody's equally vulnerable to the problem of addiction. Some people are more vulnerable than others. But what we have now is an infinite quantity of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. The drugification of things that weren't even drugs before, like human attachment and food, those are now drugs or right. potential drugs, right? And so we've greatly expanded the vulnerability in the population to the problem of addiction. And that's borne out by epidemiology. So for example, if you just look even at alcohol, rates of alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, as we say in the field of addiction medicine in women have gone up 80% in the last 30 years, 80%. So it used to be that men outnumbered women five to one to two to one in terms of rates of alcohol addiction. Now it's one to one, starting with the millennials. Wow. Yep. Rates why of do you think that is, though? Is oh, it be- God. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. I want to know why. Sorry. Yeah, no, I want to no, Is that because people, women are on social media and they're in the, I would think it's because you're so much more susceptible because of this whole comparison game. So people try to distract themselves. They try to like, uh, kind of lose themselves and they're like, they're, they're, they're going towards things that are like that. That's my guess. You tell me why. I mean, I think it's parents being a mother being a parent being difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a lot of different factors. First of all, the population in general is getting more addicted because it's easier to get alcohol and other drugs. We now have drugs that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. Like social media is the drugification of, I mean, we're now getting addicted to social media, right? So I think not getting, it, we are addicted. We are, we, are, we mean, are, right. You're lucky that you're not on it. You yeah. know, that was a very smart move by you because people it's very, once you're on it, it's very, very hard to, to get yeah. off of it. Right. It's like, yes. like, like what you were saying, what this whole, you just said a lot of great things there that I wanted to pick apart. Number one, yeah. that drugs, it's not just drugs and alcohol that you can become addicted to. You can become addicted to a plethora of things. One being which I thought was very shocking, which you were very candid about, like you were saying, reading romance novels, I would never think reading would be an addiction. Like, can, does that mean anything can be an addiction if you do too much of it? Like what quantifies something as an addiction? You know, the key message here is that technology has allowed us to drugify things that were not previously addicted, Mm, but are now. And, and And the features are, quantity. So the more you access you have to a drug, the more likely you are to get addicted because quantity and frequency matter and TikTok never runs out. <laughs> um, right. That's we, true. We, we have potency. So like how much dopamine gets released in the reward pathway. And really this technology has unlocked the code of how to release dopamine. They know exactly how to do it. You, you rank things, you know, you enumerate it with number of likes. You include these bright colors, beautiful images, sounds, confetti. Um, you know, you link it to a social tribe. What part of what releases dopamine is when we have the same emotion as other people at the same time that they're having it, right? That's a huge release of dopamine. And then you make that tribe not one or two or 10 or 20, but you make it 20 million, you know, that's a huge and potent source of dopamine and also a huge and potent source of a potential severe come down if you don't get the response that you were hoping for or that you wanted. Um, Plus you've got novelty. You've got drugs that didn't exist before. Again, social media, video games didn't exist before. A lot of drugs that now are much more accessible because they're online. Pornography, right? Pornography, Mm -hmm. it was like, like you had to like work to go get the Playboy or what I can hear Mm -hmm. middle-aged men talk about how, you know, when they were teenagers, you know, now like you've got five-year-olds, you know, swiping right and swiping left. It's really, really scary. So wait, so then are we talking, are we saying, because there's two things, are you saying that women... Um, it's up 80% with, for, for alcohol. Is yeah. it because more access on, for what, is it the access part? That is, is I think the, the, big, the biggest factor is the access. I think another big piece of it is cultural changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, previously it was much more stigmatized for women to use substances. Okay. And now it's really not, you know, now it's even kind of like a, a, a bit of a badge of feminism, right? That we're going to use our, you know, we're going to drink our alcohol the way we want to drink our right. alcohol. We're going to be a boss. We're going to be right. like a man. Yeah, we, yeah. We're, we're equal to a man, if not more. And right. therefore, we can right. do that. Um, right. But then getting back to this romance novel then. So then that means like, your situation. 
at what point did you feel that that was even an addiction? Like how much, how much is too much when you read? I mean, when you read, is it that it like, at what point are you like, ah, this is getting to be a problem. And then do you even have to go cool Turkey or how do you do it? It's like, like, are you not allowed to read anybody with Fabio on the cover? Like, I don't. Yeah. Right. Great, great question. So, you know, uh, um, you know, broadly defined addiction, we base a diagnosis of addiction on the four C's out of control use, compulsive use, right. cravings, and continued use despite consequences. And what happened to me, and also there's also tolerance. Tolerance is finding that our drug isn't working at the dose that it used to work, and we need more and more to get the same effect, and also withdrawal when we stop. And I actually had all of those things. Wow. So um, I started to have out of control use where, you know, I would plan to just read a chapter or maybe just finish the book. And it would be like midnight, so it was cutting into my sleep, and I had to work the next day. My husband's asleep next to me. And instead of putting that Kindle down, I would like find myself compulsively scrolling for another book as soon as I finished one book. I also experienced problems with tolerance, where I found that after I had you know consumed all of the teenage vampire romance novels, werewolf novels, witch romance novels, necromancers, soothsayers, all of the different kinds of fantasy genres, then I needed, you know, basically frank erotica in order to, you know, get my fix. And I got to a point where I wouldn't even finish the books. I would just to get to the, you know, three quarters of the way through, which which is like the climactic scene in every single, if you take a romance novel and you literally visually open it to three quarters of the three, you will find the climactic sex scene in there. And I would get to that point and then I wouldn't read anymore. I just, it was like, I was just like going for my black tar heroin. I wouldn't. Really? Yeah. And also I was spending, um, you know, less time with my kids, with my husband. I started taking romance novels to work and reading between patients. Um, I mean, it really, I just got totally absorbed in this fantasy world where I always wanted to be in that world a little bit like, you know, the way people describe a little bit social media, you know, like they're just sort of, it's always calling them and pulling to them. So, and um, I did what I recommend, you know, when I finally realized it, which I realized by telling another human being what was going on, um, I did what I recommend to my patients with drug and alcohol addiction. I tried, I abstained for a month and a month is sort of what, what happens in the brain. If you repeatedly expose your brain to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors is that in order to compensate, you, you accumulate more and more neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side of the balance. And ultimately you end up in a dopamine deficit state where you've re set your hedonic or joy set point to the side of pain. Now you're in a chronic dopamine deficit state modest rewards aren't rewarding and you need to keep using your drug not to get high but just to level the balance and feel normal so what happens when you first abstain obviously you know you go into withdrawal and that is actually what happened to me i had um, a lot of increased anxiety and irritability and insomnia I, I i really had lost the art of falling asleep without this behavior so it was really tough for me the first two weeks but by the time i got to weeks three and four um, I felt a lot better and I was out of this craving place. My, my sort of my, you know, I could enjoy other things again. I could look back and say, wow, that was like a, a nutty inter- interlude in my life. And then I thought, well, I'm good. I'm going to go back to, you know, reading now and then. And I picked up a romance novel and then I binged the entire weekend. Wow. So, yeah. Which is what happens to my patients. And right. So happens, I, like, well, I find this so, this is what I find so fascinating because it's like <laughs> you always hear about drugs and alcohol and even social media, right? You don't right. ever think about these more ancillary things that right. truthfully, like anybody can have an addiction that it's not so obvious or socially accept. I mean, or they could be socially acceptable, you know, reading yeah. can be, is very socially acceptable. Right. So you don't think, well, if it interferes with my life, it's okay because it's just reading, you right. know, like that's what I find interesting. And like what like, to your point, then you even start binge reading, binge reading. So are you then, how are you yeah. doing it now? Are you not allowed okay. to do it? Yeah. So, so for me, what I decided after that was that I needed to abstain for a year that, that clearly a month had was enough to kind of make me be able to recapture joy and other things, but was not enough to give me the ability to um, go back and use in moderation. So I abstained for an entire year. I was really, you know, pretty good about it. I mean, I would say I I made it the whole year. And then something really interesting, I, I tried to go back using in moderation. What I found is just it didn't the drug didn't work at all. Like I had just totally saturated 
those neurons. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, it was like, this was not going to work, right? If I I was going to have to look for something more than that. And that, that was a really interesting experience. So I was like, wow, okay. And if I really did have sort of this, I would say the disease of addiction in its severest form, I would have found something else. Like I would have, I would have gone it, but because I don't have that, I, I, I'm, I'm screwed up in a lot of other ways, but I don't have that particular thing. I was able to just reflect and go, okay, there, there's no end to it. Like there's no end to it. So I'm just not going to go there. And I was able also to implement, you know, w- what I think is one of the most important messages of the book, which is um, that a better way to get your dopamine is actually to do things that are hard up front. Because when we press on the pain side of the balance, those gremlins hop on the pleasure side and reset our pleasure pain pathway to the side of pleasure. So I use a lot of um, sort of effortful engagement, like exercise is probably my main one, and creative things that I try to do, um, service work as a way to get my dopamine indirectly. And I do a lot of also just kind of like tempering my expectations and recognizing that life is hard. You know, and it's not just, it's not just going to be necessarily pleasurable when I want it to be pleasurable. You know, my, my happiest moments are going to come probably when I'm not expecting it and when I can't control it. Control is such a big part of addiction, right? That we can change the way we feel when we want to, how much we want to, you know, in that very moment. And so kind of this really giving up control and saying, you know, who knows when the next time I'm going to feel you know, joy. I hope it comes soon. But in the meantime, I just have to sit here and be patient. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned control, right? I think a lot of this has to do with control. And, um, but I wanted to say something else, like, because you did the, um, the, like the romance novels, and then you, you, you said this whole thing about doing the hard things first, which I mean, I talk about that quite often. But if you do exercise, you could be an exercise, you, you can transfer that, like, there's a lot of people who are like exercise addicts, you yeah, know, you know, like, right. Like you can become like, for me, I, I don't think I'm necessarily at, 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 well, maybe I am actually like, if I don't work out every day, I like get crazy. Like if I, right. I, I become extremely hyper, I, I can become anxious. I'm irritable and I'm, I'm not right. I'm not right. And, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you've yeah. been, t- I've been taught or like, Oh, that's a positive trait, you know, good mm-hmm. for you. You know, that's a great thing, you know, good on you. But the truth is like, is it good on me? I mean, I would work out through injury and that's just not me. It's a lot of people, especially type right. A personalities. Right. Okay. So a couple things there. I mean, we are evolved over millions of years of evolution to walk tens of kilometers a day. And our lives today are incredibly sedentary. So in fact, we were meant to be very, very active, much more active than we are now. So it's, it's pretty hard to get to a point where, where you're actually entering the addicted to exercise realm. It definitely happens. And I've had patients who've gotten addicted to it. How do you know you're addicted again? compulsion, craving, and most importantly, continued use despite consequences. So you're injured, but you're still pounding it just like before. You're not, you're not allowing your body to rest when it really needs to rest. But another key piece to understanding this is that, and so what I'm talking about is mild to moderate Mm -hmm. exposure Mm -hmm. to noxious stimuli or pain is healthy, but extreme exposure is not healthy. Like cutting on yourself, that'll definitely release opioids but that's not healthy, right? We're talking about, you know, tempered exposure. But I will also add that the world has also drugified uh, exercise, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. and how has it done that? Well, social media is one of the most important ways. Now, on, you know, on Strava, you can see if you, you know, how your times rank, leaderboards, you know, even high school athletes now, like they have YouTube channels, they're all following each. I know this because I've got kids who are high school athletes. You yep. know, it's not just like, oh, yeah, I won the race at my, you know, local dual meet. It's like, how do my times compare to, you know, Katie living in <laughs> Louisiana? It's like, who, who, you know, that that's so kind of a craziness, right? But that's what's happened, this constant comparison. And then also I talk about in my book how literally like the technology of exercise has made exercise more addictive. In my book, I talk about how we used to think in neuroscience, in the field of neuroscience, 
that running wheels were a way to measure healthy exercise in rats in a cage. But it turns out that for rats, running wheels can be addictive. If you put a running wheel in nature, you will have rodents who will run on that running wheel, even though they're in nature, right? It's got intrinsic appeal to its own. You can have rats that run so much on the running wheel, they permanently torque their tails to the shape of the running wheel. The smaller the running wheel, the more their tails are bent. You have rats mm. that will run to death, right? That's so, amazing. Yeah, right. So, and like, what is it about the running wheel? It's something about the way that that running wheel, which doesn't exist in nature, um, defies gravity in a way that's just highly reinforcing for, you know, the mammalian brain. Somehow, you know, going vertically or horizontally defying gravity is just like, it's a major adrenaline rush. I mean, I guess you can say like the running wheel would be like a treadmill in a way. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. Exactly, right? And so there, that's, I mean, the treadmill, you know, in mild to moderate doses is better than not exercising at all, but can you overdo it? Absolutely. And is there an intrinsic quality to all of this like technology and equipment and, and like the way we compare, you know, that all fuels the potential addictive. Oh, I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, even with Apple watches and, yeah. you know, like even now you're monitoring your sleep. I mean, all this health optimization, you know, I joke around always with my friends, like that's actually all these things to kind of like all this extra knowledge that we never had before is yeah. actually stressing us all out. Like all these sleep apps, I couldn't wear it anymore because I was like looking at them all the time. I'm like, I couldn't sleep because of my sleep apps. I'm, you right. know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, it, it's so counterintuitive yeah. to, to the, to the purpose. I mean, and you're right. So that, that even before social media, like look at the internet, like you kind of touched upon how I, I'm very curious of how all of our mental health and our dopamine and all our issues spiked even before, even before, you know, Instagram, but just on mm. the fact that we had more availability on screens and information and watching porn or whatever that is. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember about 2010, all of a sudden, all these middle-aged men started coming in for porn addiction. And it, it makes sense, you know, yeah. because the, the the smartphone came out in about 2001. And these were all folks that, you know, had a, like, used porn. Right, right, um, right. You know, through their adult lives. But it was basically manageable till the smartphone. And then all of a sudden, you know, five, ten years after the smartphone, these men came in with absolutely ruined lives. They, they could not stop themselves. Um, and yeah. What do people, so I guess two things. Number one, are the, is there a personality type, even though with all of these accoutrements now, that is more vulnerable? Like, is there characteristics of people, like traits that make people more vulnerable to addiction? And then do you have like a recipe for people to like self monitor themselves or like self maintain themselves yeah to be more cognizant so yeah. they don't get into that trap mm -hmm. yeah so there are lots of sort of validated characteristics that make somebody more vulnerable to addiction we used to call it the addictive personality we don't really call it that anymore we just call it you know the disease of addiction but the disease of addiction takes the vulnerability plus the drug right mm -hmm. so and it's like finding your drug plus your vulnerability but really we're all vulnerable in a way today because we all have the same motivational neuro neural networks that mm -hmm. make us inherently approach pleasure and avoid pain that's how we're wired um, but the traits, you know, so co-occurring mental illness of any kind makes somebody more vulnerable to addiction. Um, impulsivity, so the inability to sort of push the pause button between the, wanting to do something and doing it makes people more vulnerable. Um, cognitive um, frontal lobe kind of attentional problems make people more vulnerable to addiction. Emotion dysregulation, people who get really dysregulated and then stay in that place and can't bring themselves down those folks are uh, more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. So yeah, definitely there's this innate, innate vulnerability. In terms of what to do about it, my book lays out pretty clearly what, you know, what, what that would look like. The first thing to do is number one, identify what is your drug of choice and to really be honest with yourself and preferably another human being or just with yourself in a journal if you're not comfortable sharing with another human being. But writing it down or 
verbalizing exactly what you're doing, how much, how often, because that really makes it real in a way that it's not when it's just sort of like, you know, in the back of our minds. And that was true with my uh, romance novel addiction that it wasn't until I really said to someone else, oh, I think I've got a little reading, reading problems. Like, <laughs> oh, I think I do have a problem with that. Right, so, right, right, you know, right. It's funny. It's funny how that happens. And then it, it feels more real when you say it out loud or you write yeah. it down or right. Yeah. You, you kind of come out, you sort of come out of your waking dream. You know, you can't, you can't sleepwalk your way through that anymore. Right. Um, and then the thing that I recommend is a month of abstinence from our drug of choice. So, you know, deleting that app or in my case, getting rid of my Kindle and not reading romance or for people with sex addiction, no pornography and no orgasms with themselves or others or no alcohol or no cannabis or whatever it is. Obviously, people who might go into life-threatening withdrawal w wouldn't do this. Right, people, right, would, right. people would repeatedly try to stop and weren't able to stop on their own. But for those with more mild to moderate forms of this problem who are able to stop on their own, that's what I recommend with the caveat that you will feel worse before you will feel better. Why will you feel worse? Because you're going to take the weight off the pleasure side. Those neuroadaptation gremlins are going to slam your balance down to the pain side, and you will experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. But if you wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and you feel people generally feel much better and are less craving and maybe able to engage their frontal lobes to make more realistic determinations of what kind of relationship they want to have with their drug of choice. And then from there, you decide, do you want to continue to abstain? Can you continue to abstain? If not, then how are you going to use it? And the specificity is here is key here. You know, how much are you going to use on any given day? Exactly what are you going to use? Under what circumstances are you going to use? What are the red flags you're going to look for for when your use is getting out of control? How are you going to track it? I talk a lot about self-binding strategies, which is a way of pressing the pause button between the desire to use and actually having access to your drug. So get are you going to get the drug out of the house? Are you going to make sure you only, you know, have access on certain occasions? So access is really, really important. When access is there, it's actually a strain on our minds because we're always going, I could check it now. I could check it now. I could check it now. It's like resisting, scratching an itch. Whereas if we don't have access, well, you know, that kind of goes away. Um, so that's really key. I recommend doing this with a friend or a loved one or as a family. If you can't do a month, do less than that. For some people, just not using their phone for 24 hours is a hardship, which is really almost alarming for me to see that, that as the, you know, as, Things have progressed over the last 20 years, you know, really highly sort of successful people couldn't imagine not having access to their phone for even 24 hours. That oh, I know. It's crazy to me. Yeah. You know, what's amazing. I remember even like 15 years ago, right? I never, I had my cell phone and I barely used it. Like I only use it for an emergency, right? Yeah, right. And it's funny how that's evolved to such a point where now you can't even imagine not picking it up every minute. Um, but you said something too that I think is very important. There's things that and I think people like work, for example, or food for access reasons, right? right? Like people who are food who are food addicts who right. you got you have to eat three times a day or mm -hmm. if you're intermittent fasting at least once a day. Right. How do you moderate that and work? Because the I think work people really that's not only is it socially acceptable it's like revered in a lot of places like new york san francisco even la you know where you know oh yeah like they work they're such a hard worker but that also is very that that would take your your, your four c's and it you would you know take it through the roof yeah so so you're right workaholism is a huge modern problem especially in certain professions again i really recommend starting with the dopamine fast because the salience that we attribute to these behaviors when we're caught up in them really goes away when we stop them for long enough for our brains to reset reward pathways and you may, may be able to relate to this experience where you have the opportunity to go on a vacation you leave your devices and your work at home, and all of those fears of missing out, that you're indispensable, that things are going to go haywire if you don't immediately respond to them. You have those in the first part of your vacation, right? But by the time you get to maybe to week, day four or five or whatever it is, you realize, you know what, that was crazy. Like, I, I don't need to be that available. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And, I, and I'm not that, I'm not indispensable. And these things will either sort themselves out or they don't matter, 
right? And you come to this place where you have this realization. And then of course you come back and you're like, you don't even want to restart. You know, you didn't want to check your email because you right. know you're so, but that's the key to kind of reset things. And then when you go back, put in those self-binding strategies, say, you know what? I'm not going to bring that device home or I'm going to turn it off at 5 p.m. I mean, turn it all the way off, power that sucker down and put it in my bag. And I'm not I'm not going to go get it. And I'm going to do that together with a partner, right? Where we're going to make this tech-free space. I mean, these are all really hard. Don't get me wrong. I go home every night and I'm like, I'm not going to watch YouTube while I'm brushing my teeth. I'm really not going to watch. And every night I'm like... YouTube, YouTube. <laughs> exactly. I I feel like you're a psychiatrist. Is there something? It's so true, and this is what I think is what ha- I think. The more you focus on something, I feel the worse it gets. Like for example, if I say I'm not going to have that piece of chocolate cake, I'm not going to have that piece of chocolate cake. I'll not only eat that piece of chocolate cake, I'll eat the entire cake, right? Like it, it's because I'm psych. I'm, I'm so preoccupied with it, yeah, right? Right. So like, how do people like, like, how do people like handle that? Like, it's all in theory. It sounds like, great. Like, I'm not going to, I'm going to abstain for a month. And like, to what well, you, you talk a lot about this, you know, the first two weeks are held th- third week, fourth week, it gets much better. But when, even in the middle or whenever you're doing it and you really, you know, you have a problem, you're self-aware enough, but you really have, like, you're so addicted that you right. don't have the. You're, you're, you don't, you're so impulsive or you, you cannot get that thought. It won't, you cannot stop that thought unless you actually do it. Yeah. Like with your romance novel or my chocolate cake right. or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So, so what that is, I mean, you're, you're getting to the essence of what we mean when we talk about craving. Craving are these intrusive thoughts or images, right, that come into our minds and we feel in that moment overwhelming dysphoria and anxiety, the only solution to which is to consume that thing, right? And that's craving. But the truth is that if we just sit with that feeling and do not act on it, it will pass. We have this subjective experience that it will go on forever unless we give into it, but really it will pass. So what is the key to affording ourselves time to let it pass? Self-binding, we cannot have the chocolate cake in the house. If you put the chocolate cake in front of me, I will eat the chocolate cake when I'm craving the chocolate. There's just no way that that's like two plus two equals four. Right. But, but you if go to a party. Yeah. Going to party. Right. For a while, you maybe you can't go to those parties. Right. You can't go um, because at that party, you know, but if you have enough abstinence, I, I, I promise you with sustained abstinence, it gets easier. You re-engage your frontal lobe. You're not immune but you re-engage your frontal lobe, your physiology changes, and you're not in that vortex. The other thing that's just really, really helpful for a lot of different reasons is to connect with people on a regular basis struggling with the same problem. And of course, this is the genius of Alcoholics mm-hmm. Anonymous, but it really, really works. And there's Food Addicts Anonymous, there's a Reader's Anonymous, you know, there's, there's, there's a Reader's Anonymous. Oh, there's probably a Reader's Anonymous. I don't know, but there probably is. There probably there's a, a Sex and Love Addiction Anonymous. There's a Love oh, that Addiction Anonymous. That's kind of you know similar similar bucket. Well, you know what? I, I also find that a lot of times that people are doing great, right? They like they kind of are like on that path. Why do people like self sabotage themselves when they're doing so well? Well, because. Because of the gremlins, because... Yeah, they kind of creep up again. Yeah, well, what happens is this is about triggers. And triggers can be external things, people, places, and things that remind us of our drug or even our own euphoric recall of the drug where we remember only the good things and none of the bad things, Mm -hmm. which is what we all tend to Romanticize it, basically. Right. And what... What neuroscience has shown, and this is to me really fascinating, that when when we are triggered for our drug or even just remember our drug, we actually get a release of dopamine. So that alone gets us a little bit high, Mm. but then that's followed immediately by the dopamine deficit state. So then we go into craving. So already this cycle of elevated dopamine and then below baseline levels of dopamine occurs with the reminder of the drug. And of course, once we're in that dopamine deficit state, then that's craving, and then we're we're driven to do the work to go to go get the drug. So protecting ourselves from from the from the triggers is really important, and also doing what's called thinking through the drink. When we have euphoric recall, trying to remind ourselves, wait a minute, my brain is telling me all the great things, but I have to force myself 
to remember all of the bad things that came afterward. Because we will remember how good it felt, but we don't remember all the crap. And then we go for the drug and we try it and it doesn't even feel that good, right? Because mm -hmm. our brain has now already been recalibrated for that substance and it doesn't work. And then we're frustrated because then we relapsed anyway, but then it's like, well, now I might as well eat the whole cake because if <laughs> a piece doesn't work, you know, and it's just, so it's such a vicious cycle, but we can, we can, uh, we can get a hold of it. I also it, really think that this pressing on the pain side is key. And I also talk about radical honesty, telling the truth and making intimate human connections. I want to talk of, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about in dopamine is like a each letter stands for something else and people can read the book, but to get all of it, but you do talk about the M is for mindfulness and you get that you hear about that a lot. Right. Um, but the way you say it is, is actually, I really enjoy the way you talk about it. It's not so, oh, so like common as everyone else mentions, but, um, like you said, like it's when it's kind of reminds me when you have that chocolate cake craving, I'm just using that as an example, but like, um, when you have any type of thing, if you actually like sit with it long enough, it will dissipate, but in the moment you don't think it will. Right. So no. if you can remind yourself in that moment, mm -hmm. you know, this too shall pass. Right. 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 Um, but you do talk about the truth telling and I, I, I do want, well, well, you, let, well, we just mentioned it. So let's talk about that. And, and then I wanted to ask you something differently. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the other thing that I prescribe to patients in this 30 day period, but also for recovery in general, which is just something I learned from, from patients in recovery, which is that we need to tell the truth about things large and small. And once we start lying, even about little things, we're, we're vulnerable to relapse. And that's sort of interesting. Like, yeah. Why, why is that? Yeah. Why is that? Right. Yeah. Um, and and I, I write in the book about how it works on a number of different levels. But, you know, one of the important ways that it works is that when we're radically honest with other people that we love and care about, um, we think that they're going to go running screaming from us because we're exposing, you know, warts and all. But instead, what it actually does is make people feel closer to us. So it promotes intimacy and true intimacy is a great and healthy source of dopamine. And when we feel that hit of intimacy, Boy, that's one of the rare moments in life, at least for me, where I feel truly happy, mm -hmm. you know, for a while, right before yeah. I'm, you know, not again. Um, so, so, so that's really important. The other thing is that, you know, the stories that we, the autobiographical narratives or stories that we tell about our lives are really, really important. And there are healing narratives and then there are destructive narratives. And I've learned over the years that healing narratives are the ones that adhere closest to true reality. That is to say the ones that if you were to say, you know, get every single person who saw the car crash at the intersection and put all their versions of it together, you would get closest to what it is. But instead, what we often want to do is write a story where we're the heroes or we're the victims or where we're not really being totally honest about how we contributed to the problem. Um, it's really important that we do that, that our stories that we tell about our lives really honestly look at the ways that we've messed up. And that's uncomfortable to do that. It's not sort of our natural reflex. We're generally wanting to cover that stuff up. But I found that's really important. Why? Because these narratives are not just a way to organize the past. They're really also a roadmap for the future. So if we're telling stories that aren't true, we're not going to have access to the information that we need going forward to make good decisions. But true stories allow us to really pinpoint what's really happening, you know, and then enlist the evidence to make better decisions going forward. So that's why I feel like friends of mine who've been in like AA and all this, that's like a big thing, right? They yeah. It's all about radical honesty. And, and it, it's like if you do, if you'd say a little lie, that can lead, it's a gateway to a big lie, right? That's right. Yeah. That, so just that's have, right. Right. So, like, yeah. even like if you smoke a little bit of pot, that could be a gateway to heroin. Or, by the way, right. like pot can be like people are over ODing on pot because right. they think it's an, as you talk about this in your book with one of your heroes' patients, right? Like that they, people, think, oh, I have an anxiety, I have anxiety, I'm going to, I'm going to mask it with this will help. But that right. ends up becoming the problem. Right. When does somebody like, when do people, can you give, can you give a couple of examples or tell people when that, 
like how they know when that is an issue. Like let's just use the pot example, right? Like you have anxiety. So you end up like smoking every day. And then you think if you don't smoke, you're going to keep on having terrible anxiety when really it's that that's the underpin. The underpinning is actually the the problem that you're trying to mask it with is the problem. Yeah. So this gets to the whole concept of, of self-medication and this idea that, that, that intoxicants like cannabis are self-medication for an underlying psychiatric disorder like depression. And it is very true that, you know, with initial use immediately, we get relief from those psychiatric symptoms. But with continued use, we basically change our dopamine set point such that we're walking mm-hmm. around with our balance tilted to the side of pain. And, and now essentially the pot is driving the depression and anxiety. And I know this from, you know, the neuroscience, but also my clinical experience. I have so many patients come in, they want help with depression, anxiety, they're smoking pot every day. They want me to prescribe them an antidepressant. 20 years ago, I would have. Now I say, you know what, you got to cut out the pot for a month. And that alone may cure your depression. And of course, they don't ever think that could be true. Because they say, but wait a minute, I feel better when I smoke. It's the only thing that helps my depression. I say, well, it may feel in the moment that it's helping your depression, but really all it's doing is getting you to equilibrium, right? It's just restoring homeostasis temporarily while more gremlins hop on the pain side. And then those who are willing and able to do the experiment, about 80% of them will come back and say, I haven't felt this good in years. I hadn't realized that the pot itself was making me feel bad. How many people are, or what's the percentage if you have it of people who actually are able to do that? Like just like basically not do anything for the month or, and like wait it out. Do people usually um, just give up because they can't take it or like, what's the ratio? Um, I would you've say, seen? yeah. So in my clinical practice, um, I would say roughly between, about 50%, let's say, are, are both willing and able to do it. About 50% of folks. Some people just aren't willing. They like, just won't buy into even doing the experiment. Right. Some people some people plan to do it and, and then aren't able to. Um, and that's also useful information, right? It's like, well, maybe this is actually not within your willful control. Like we set that goal, you agreed to the goal, but you couldn't do it. Maybe you need a higher level of care. Um, you know, a more extreme intervention, like maybe a residential treatment facility. And then also importantly, you know, although most people feel much better if they do it and they're, they're successful, there's a percentage of folks who don't, probably about 20, 20% of folks come back and say, you know, I abstain for the whole month, I don't feel any better, you know, what you predicted didn't happen for me. And that's, again, it's always sad, but also really useful information, because it's like, okay, whatever's going on with you is not then primarily being driven uh, by your drug use. Can you tell, what's the most, uh, like obscure addiction that you've seen in your office? You've been doing this for 25 years, right? You've been a psychiatrist. You still practice, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, most of my professional work is seeing patients and teaching other people. Do you do virtual? Not because for me, I'm just asking, do you do virtual? I'm I'm sure you're so inundated with people who just want to work with you now, right? Yeah. So I'm not personally taking new patients just to put that (laughs) out there. Um, You'll be flooded with more, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm primarily, you know, counseling other people now to see patients and, um, you know, supporting them in that endeavor. Um, and yeah, about 95% of our care now is virtual since the pandemic used to be all in person and now it's 95% right. virtual. And we can only see people in California because that's where we have a medical license. So it's all. Um, the most unusual addiction probably was a woman who had been addicted to alcohol and was in sustained recovery from her alcohol use, but then got addicted to water. And what happened there was that she had figured out that if she drank very large volumes of water, she could cause herself to become hyponatremic and altered because of that. So that was, wow. that was really, that was really sad. Yeah. What, where is she now? She um, ended her life. Yeah. So she died of her disease. Very, very sad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How much water would you need to drink for that to happen? Liters and liters. Wow. So, yeah. so that's the most unusual one that you've seen basically. 
Yeah, I mean, then I, there's like a whole host of just new behavioral addictions. Behavioral addictions are addictions to a behavior rather than a drug. You know, all manner of, as you know from my book, um, yeah. sex and pornography addiction, but also all kinds of addictions of digital drugs. Then have have you seen people who are insensitive to dopamine, like who are unable to get that? Like, what would that be called if you're not able to get that dopamine? Hi. That's 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 almost you could almost call that depression, right? That would um, be depression, right? Yeah, if you're, right. And sometimes that that the the theory is that that's why people with severe depression are at higher risk for addiction because they're reaching, you know, for something to get them out of that. But the irony, you know, the terrible paradox there is that addictive substances ultimately make the depression worse, right? So even if you start out here with a pleasure pain balance to the side of pain. If you use an intoxicant, those gremlins will just push you further down on the pain side. So is there like, uh, to get it back to the, to your, to the baseline with the, with the pressure, with the, with the pleasure pain is, do you would, would you have to do what you, um, the completely go cool Turkey for the month, basically to kind of level yourself back up to baseline? Yeah. So a lot of times patients will say, well, can I just cut back? And in my clinical experience, that doesn't work. Why? Because you never restore baseline homeostasis. You just kind of inch yourself a little bit here, but you never get the reward of being at baseline and feeling what it's like to be out of that vortex of compulsive overconsumption and be able to enjoy other things. It really takes three to four weeks minimum of abstinence. But what about things like the working or the eating? Could you need to be doing those? So what are you supposed to do? Well, for food addiction, what needs to or, happen or is work addictions right. probably more because you people are working uh, yeah. and they need yeah. to sustain like a, like an attorney or an investment banker or, you know, me, you know, anybody who works a lot, like how are you supposed like you're an entrepreneur, right? Because it's like, yeah. you, you eat what you kill, right? Yeah, right. How yeah. can you moderate that? Well, very, very hard. I mean, I'm not pretending like that's easy. I, I do think, again, quantity and frequency really matter with any addiction. So making sure that you take a day of Sabbath, you know, and rest one day a week, making sure that you get enough sleep and exercise and structure, trying to even limit the number of hours that you work on any given day. People are very embracing intermittent fasting. How about intermittent working? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that might be the thing. And then I think also qualitatively, just being aware of what aspects of your work bring you a kind of deeper joy and what aspects leave you feeling sort of frustrated and angry and irritable. And then if you have the ability to sort of parse away those things that are ultimately don't give you a sense of meaning and purpose and trying to keep the things that do. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the, your book is very, very good. It's called Dopamine Nation. I will let you off because um, it's all in here. Um, you've been doing so many podcasts and I mean, you must be getting tired of answering the same questions probably over and over and over again. But well, you know, I believe in the message, so I want to get it out there to as many people. I do feel it's fundamental to, uh, you know, a flourishing life in the modern world. You know, it's worked for so many of my patients in their recovery. I've I've stolen so many of their ideas in my own life. Um, it, it, it can sometimes be hard to, to do the interviews over and over again, but what I, that's one of the things I've been looking at myself as we're talking about, you know, work and how to optimize it. And one of the things I've concluded is if I feel like I make a real honest human connection with the interviewer, then actually it's very joyful for me and not burdensome. And I, I feel that way today with you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's yeah. so sweet to say. I yeah, feel no, the same way. Yeah, you're, you're very real. And I feel like we made an honest connection. And, and But some other times I haven't been able to have that feeling. And yeah, then it's, it's not as... Um, it's not as joyful and it's not, I'm not saying it's the other, the interviewer's fault. It could just as well be my fault. You know, sometimes you just kind of can't make the connection. Yeah. And just feel that. And also like, to like, I think that it's always, it's like, it could be mind numbingly like annoying when people are asking you, what is dopamine over and over and over again. And like, you have to sit there and be polite. And it's like, it's a, diff it's a difficult thing. I mean, I don't mind that. I don't mind that, you know, because I I'm pretty stupid myself and I need to hear things. Oh, over please. And over. <laughs> I don't think you're stupid at <laughs> but, all. I but mean, you know, I, I don't, I, I like to teach to a receptive audience. I love to teach. That's a great joy. Do you teach um, still by the way? Oh yeah, teach? that's I, I'm I'm I basically am a clinician educator, so I, I see patients and I teach. I teach all the time. That's what I do. You do teach Actually, all the time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Well, because your book is so successful. I mean, do you ever get like, are you addicted to looking at how many copies are being sold? Like, oh, I, I was when it first came out. I was, I was, I was, because I didn't think it would sell but two copies. And then when it was like <laughs> number two on Amazon or number one on Audible, I got addicted to checking it. I was checking every hour. I did that for about two weeks. See, the, here's the thing about life. Like we keep making the same mistakes over and over again, but hopefully we make them faster. So this time it didn't take me two years. It just took me two weeks to go, oh, I'm getting addicted. To and so then I stopped. And now I, I don't. And also I never watch myself being interviewed later. Never. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, yeah. how did you, so how do you, how did you even, even the self-awareness of like, okay, I'm, I'm getting addicted to like looking at that happening. Cause I was, yeah. I was thinking, how do you not, like if you're a human mm -hmm. being, I mean, it was also, wasn't it a, it's a New York times bestseller too, isn't yeah. it? What yeah. number did it get to New York Times? I, I don't know. I stopped looking. That's when, but how do you stop? Like, what, so you, 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 you kind of caught yourself and then how did you stop it though? Like you, with all your training, you're just like, you kind of just implemented this one month abstaining from looking yeah. and then you got better. Yeah. I, I, it's, I know it sounds too simple to be true, but I'm telling you, you can get through a month of not using, you get out of the, the suction of the black hole and then you get to this place where you can, enlist your own agency and decide and deciding in a way that's consistent with your values, goals, meaning, and purpose is then really, really important. So, you know, why did I write the book? I didn't write the book to sell a lot of books or make money. And right. trust me, I'm not making a lot of money on the book. I, you know, oh, I, I know I, how that works. And I know. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. I wrote, I wrote the book because I wanted to get a message out, you know, that I thought would be helpful to people. And then that's then, okay, what am I doing the things to help get the message out? And then, then that, those are the things I focus on. No, I think it's great. Are you doing a lot of speaking engagements? I like get different university colleges and, yeah, so I get invited to do those. I I I do those. I I like the podcasts better because like it's one on one with a human, mm -hmm. and when we have a good connection, it's really enjoyable. Right. It's, I'm not as much of like get on the stage, and I, mean, I can do that, but I, I don't enjoy that. Also, you know, a lot of these virtual events now, you can't see anybody. I know. So you're like a floating head in in like in like Zoom land. And that's very creepy and disorienting. I don't like that at all. No, I totally hear that. Are you planning on writing like a follow-up book or you haven't even thought that far down the I road? Haven't, no, I haven't even thought about it. I mean, you know, sometimes I have some ideas, but boy, for every, you know, hundred ideas I have, there's maybe half a good one. No, I mean, listen, <laughs> I, 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 I doubt that, but I feel like this book was so timely because of also COVID, right? Everybody yeah. is like stuck in their lockdown and, and not doing what they want to be doing. And they're looking right. for any hit to be, right. and it's probably such a, it, it's, it's, it was so increased by, of course, social media and digital and porn right. and food, like right. any, any big addiction would be, right. is going to be like, it's going to be at its like precipice at that point. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we're, and it's just going to be like the modern dilemma. I mean, this is really just opening the conversation of, you know, what we need to continue to talk about for like the foreseeable future. And it's so disorienting because on the one hand, we've got people dying in, in the Ukraine. I know. And we're obsessing about our Instagram, but it is the world we live in. I mean, we can't, so it, true. It, we have to accept that is the world that we live in. So like, how are we going to make the best of it? Absolutely true. Uh, well, I really appreciate your time. You're yeah, fantastic. No, seriously. Thank you. The book is called Dopamine Nation. Here it is. Uh, and hopefully, I mean, maybe you can come on again and, and shed some light again on, yeah. on topics in it, because I know this is going to be, is going to resonate with a lot of people um, as it has already. And, uh, you're obviously extremely knowledgeable. And I, like I said, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there, you're not on social media. So how do people find you just not, they, they don't, they don't <laughs> essentially, they, they listen to your podcast and read the book. Right, 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 right. Exactly. And then leave you alone, right. Leave you to teach. Well, and and yes. do, yeah, exactly. Um, that's exactly true. That's good. Though. Good, good on you for not getting sucked into that vortex of social media. Girl. Oh, that's, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Mm. Guaranteed. I wouldn't be able to handle it. That was very, very smart of you. Cause once, like I said, from the beginning, once you start, it's like literally a black hole and you cannot yeah. get out. Right. So, right. um, but thank you. I appreciate your time and My I'll, see, pleasure. I'll see you soon. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. 
Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.